0: Aerial pursuit of two suspects has started. Be advised, suspects are armed and dangerous. We have visual. Let's get boys. coming it's barbell medicine uh seminar here in uh, seattle i guess technically bellevue but we'll call it seattle for the tubes uh what we'll do is we'll go around the room for a question and answer we'll start on this side work our way across uh so the question is about uh if i change the food type or quantity when somebody is losing weight and we need to make an adjustment so someone and so they want to regain weight and they want to re- like they've lost the weight oh, okay now they're wanting to put on weight. Are you changing any type of the food or just the gotcha. quantity? Uh, yeah, so I, I'm just changing quantities because I, I think people end up being most compliant into foods that they like to eat. I mean that's a very simplistic view of it. But uh, overall, again, the main, the main component towards dietary success either in losing weight, maintaining weight, or gaining weight is going to be compliance. And so if I'm restricting food that ultimately compromises compliance – then that's a battle that I'm going to lose 10 out of 10 times. So I'm just adjusting quantity at that point. Now, if I adjust quantity and somebody cannot be compliant with that because they're la- they're like, I don't know what else to eat, then I may suggest a different food than what they're eating. But that's, you know, somebody who's like, I, I've no- I don't eat cereal. I'm like, well, why? And they're like, I don't know. I heard it was bad for you. And then you have to do some teaching around that. Um, so... In my estimation, there are no you know, purely good or bad foods. It's going to be more related to the amounts. And somebody on the internet is going to be triggered by that. That is my answer. Any, any more? Nope. To that? You don't just routinely recommend gallon milk a day? <laughs> no. Almost never. Almost never. Yeah. Same. Uh, so the question is, as a lay person, is it advisable to go read the research? And if so, how would I go about doing it? Yeah. Sorry. Um,
1: we may very well end up having different opinions here. It's oh yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, fight me in real life. Right. <laughs> so, I don't uh, the key to getting better at reading research is what do you think? Reading, reading more research. It's the repeated about right? effect. The problem <laughs> the problem however is that uh, there is a lot of statistical magic that goes on in the research world that even we are not trained in biostatistics right so we look at a paper and we go you know first thing is we go and look at the methods and the data and stuff like that and it's like we can we do do our best job at interpreting this stuff but hey if they used a slightly incorrect statistical test to interpret their data we don't get we don't pick up on that kind of stuff so there are even there are places where you know we are by no means like arbiters of the the research world so that's why Uh, We think it's useful to not only we try to read the research, but we also uh, engage with kind of the uh, leaders in the research fields and kind of, you know, because the Internet and social media and things like that has given a voice to people on other platforms. And that's where actually I find tons of research is by following kind of experts in the in my little niche fields like on Twitter, for example. They're all sharing the primary literature that then guides me to go find it and read it and kind of put it into context and things like that. I think the learning curve for a layperson to start picking up primary literature, particularly in biomedicine, is fairly steep. Um, and sorry, oh yeah, so he's going to disagree, which will be interesting. Well, we'll see. So I think that if you are engaged and motivated enough to try to learn, then you just need to start doing it, and you'll start to kind of pick up some trends. This is assuming you have like some basic biology background or something, yeah. right? For the language, the language issue. If you're like a you know an art history major and you try to do this, you're in bigger deep you know deep waters there. But if you have some of that basic science background and you start picking them up, then as you practice, you'll get better and better at it. Um, there are some folks on the internet who have developed kind of some, co- some guides to how to read this stuff. There's a text called The User's Guide to the Medical Literature uh, that uh, I think is good for kind of learning how to critically appraise this stuff. And that's probably where I would start for, from a medical research standpoint. If you want to go into like exercise science, that may not be the ideal, but it's probably still a fine place to start. Something like that, and then um, there are some folks. I think like the guy, the mass guys did something having to do with like how to read a research paper and stuff yeah, like that. And you true. know they're smart dudes, and so there are people who are putting this kind of stuff out in terms of guiding people through the research, and that that can be another way to kind of educate yourself on the stuff. The whole research review scene on the internet has kind of blown up in the past, past few years after. Alan Aragon kind of started it. And then there's a yeah. bunch of other folks, Krieger and the mask guys, and plenty of people are doing this kind of thing as well to, yeah, make, I mean,
0: to make it digestible for the public. Well, I think that just shows you there's a market because people want to know. Yeah. So I think trying to inform yourself, arm yourself with knowledge is admirable. And I would encourage anybody to just increase their knowledge by hook or by crook throughout their, throughout their lifetime. The issue with... Primary literature, well, starting to get into literature in general, is that it's. I disagree that the learning curve is steep. The learning curve with when the learning curve is steep, that means you're rapidly acquiring skills and knowledge of what. I mean, it's a fast, oh, fast climb. I meant the connotation yeah, is it's I know. difficult. Yeah, I know. I know. Isn't that what a steep learning curve means? No, that's what people say. But when they think when you think about <laughs> it, you're like, well, no, it's actually flat. You're like, this is difficult. You're acquiring less uh, skills and effort that you're putting in. So, so I think that. You have to decide, well, what do you really want out of this? If you're trying to acquire more knowledge to improve your either coaching practice or just for your own personal gain, I would uh, uh, suggest that a, uh, some adult learning program where you obtain some sort of credential at the end is probably the best initial step. So, for instance, if you had a bachelor's degree in some science related field, it may not, you know, this may not be something you could do but getting a master's in something that's research heavy makes you read the research and you have acts direct access to people who are telling you no that is the incorrect way to read this and here's why because they're more experienced you're paying for that access that's what the the fee you know to go to school is from and i I think barring that it would be difficult to imagine a situation a person who has a full-time job Right, and responsibilities to earn a, a wage that they could go from I have never read a research paper before to I have a good understanding of all these different things and it's not because I don't want people to try oh you're going to find us out no it's just that you're going to use a lot of resources that I think could be better used elsewhere unless you wanted to take the first step towards getting good a good science background which is A a second degree, yeah, it it has to be there. It's like it's like asking patients, families to decide things, (laughs) and you're trying to educate them on the whole disease process and what the course is going to be. And you're like, I'm doing the best I can, but there's not there's a big knowledge gap there, you know. So um, I think if you're in a position, you're really interested in the topic, then getting additional education to start where you have access to mentors and people to guide you through this stuff is super useful. Um, I don't know of anybody offering that product on the internet right now. It's just as an adult learning course, but I I mean what I did, I graduated with a biology degree and I didn't know anything anything other than that you can't do anything with a biology degree That's, unless you want to go back to school <laughs> to teach biology. So, uh I ended up going and getting a master's degree um in anatomy and physiology and during the course of developing my uh my project and I, the thesis that I defended, um which was the the fact that there's no reason to call the VMO a thing, um, I had to read a lot of research. And having access to those, to my professors and, and counselors, they, they helped me learn how to read research, which ultimately got me into medical school where this whole process you know, sped up. Sped up. Okay. And now, even now, when I read something, I'm like, I don't know, man. So then I, I'll text Baraki and I'm like, uh, here's what I'm thinking, he goes, no dude <laughs> uh, which is nice to have but so so but start but but trying to do that after my just my undergrad degree. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I'm never going to discourage anybody from trying to start to read the literature. so if you can't do that, just go read everything, but you have to couch your interpretation of each study that you come across in the in a larger context like I'm not sure where this falls. In the existing knowledge of this particular topic. And I think that's, you know, if you approach it with that, then there's little harm done in, re- in reading this stuff, other than it may not be the most efficient use of your time right now. Do you grossly disagree with me?
1: No, you, your disagreement was based on thinking that a steep learning curve meant something else. <laughs> no, 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 no.
0: I maintain that you use the t- phrase steep learning curve as it's used currently, which is wrong. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So the question is about volume. How long should you continue to increase it before you either decrease it or make a change? Is that fair to say? I like to, I I mean, I'm on board with Mike Toucher's emergent strategies type approach. And for those who are not familiar with that, it's the idea that you're developing a set of programming variables that you hypothesize will increase, will uh, produce the, uh, provide the stress to drive the fatigue and ultimately the adaptations that you're seeking. And as far as you can see those things improving, don't change anything. And then when those things start to either go sideways or go down, then you make a change. So if I made a custom version of the bridge for you, as long as your numbers were trending up or things were in general improving, I would probably keep you on that trend until something changed. So I don't think that there's a general... Rule of thumb for when week five, week six, week four, where you should volume needs to always go down. Then I don't think there's a reliable number there. That being said, in practice, I found that four to eight weeks is kind of the length of this sort of development, these volume de- like development periods where the volume is high, intensity is re- you know relatively low compared to these peaking phases or whatever. Four to eight weeks. It's been interesting though over my training career. Where it started out would be like only three weeks of volume, and then I thought I needed a deload or some sort of transition, and then later on, it's been like six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, where I've been able to see like pretty steady improvements before you know falling off a cliff and like oh no, I need something different now. Has that been your general yeah. experience? Yeah, I think that the point
1: the the, the point to underline here is that uh, it's very difficult to provide a very confident general prescription on this sort of thing and it's mainly the result of what I talked about in the stress lecture in terms of the wide variability in response to training right so you could take any one of our programs any one of our templates put it on a large put a large cohort of people on that program and you're going to see a broad range of responses we you know we've designed it according to principles that we think are you know fairly robust but I would not at all be surprised to run a group of 50 people across one of those programs and see some folks who don't respond particularly well to it and that just yeah. means they need what more or different right that's I'd kind wanna, of that's kind of what we've 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 discussed and so you know I can't really confidently tell you a specific prescription like that just cuz it's like you could easily take that home and you could be the guy who's not going
0: to respond to that kind of thing. And you're like, this guy didn't know what he's
1: talking about.
0: It, you know? It, so it's it, just hard. If we gave the program to, let's say, 100 people and we didn't see people who did worse, all that would tell me is that we didn't have a big enough sample size. <laughs> it was poor. Yeah, poor, poor sampling. I, I expect that a small, hopefully a small percentage of the people being exposed to it actually regress on the program. And if I don't see anybody who did that, I know that my sample size is biased and not big enough. So, yeah. if it, we saw if we saw that it worked for
1: 100% of people we're like
0: I don't believe it. Yeah, I don't believe that. Something's wrong. <laughs> so, so something that I would take home like in practice is that if you found that the bridge worked really well for you the first time, right? And you found that things were still trending up at week 4, maybe you repeat week 4 for another couple of weeks until you find that things are either stagnating or regressing a little bit and then you switch and what you see in that second half of the bridge, the last two or three weeks, is that the intensity goes up, the volume goes down. You can do that. That'd be a way to modify the bridge. Just milk us for more free stuff. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the dudes at the seminar. Yeah. I do. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. So one way to, that you find out. Uh, that you read more literature and get a bigger, uh, wider field of view on a particular topic is not only search for things that affirm your confirmation bias, right? Like volume is the best variable to <laughs> manipulate. So, but then you say intensity is the best variable. And then you find both sides of the argument. And by reading all this stuff, you start to get a bigger appreciation of not only where are the disagreement's at, but then where are the common ground. You know, I actually think that there's not that things aren't terribly different when you get down to how actual programming is managed but when people say certain things that's when you you know we're like well, that doesn't you make can't it. say that you can't actually say that <laughs> so so you know for instance when people characterize us as just volume you know volume queens so like they all they like is volume and you're like well yeah but it's 70 to 80% and then regular exposure to heavy singles at 90 to 95% and you know as you peak you might you know see some heavy triples and fives at 80 to 85% and they're like well that seems Reasonable, and we're like, well, yeah, we're not like trying to be bad at this thing. Um Yeah, so I think I think that's a, another tool you can use. Yeah, is that I'm
1: selfish? I want more, not just you know, the doctors, but like I feel like especially the seminar. There's valuable things like Leah and
0: yeah. more collaboration with us with uh, Alan. Yeah, uh, hearing from Tom, like how do you guys plan to get them more involved in the channel or however you're looking? We're actually gonna fire them. <laughs> yeah, this insolence will not stand. Uh, so the question is, how are we going to get the rest of the barbell medicine crew involved? Um, yeah, well, so I have a unique situation in that all I do is barbell medicine stuff all the time. So people on YouTube or Instagram are like, "Hey, man, I really like your stuff, but I want to see your friends." And I'm like, well, yeah, me too, man. I want them to come over to the studio and shoot videos. But if I decide to record a video at 2.30 in the morning because, you know, I can't sleep or whatever, well, I can't very well call Leah and say, hey, do you want to come over and shoot a video about myo reps? And she, you know, she, if I did, she'd be like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, so many things are wrong with me. Um, I, think, I think that – uh barbell medicine is growing and one of my goals is to get more people more of our uh uh, the folks involved as far as producing content it's just right now i am like the final common pathway between like getting stuff on our youtube or getting stuff on instagram or on the website and as we grow i somebody else needs to be in charge of that so that way people can field stuff that being said they got to record stuff too I can't just be in the editing room yeah well seriously though right so if anybody, if everybody's sending me just like raw clips and I have to then piece it together then that's a not insurmountable task but then it it's just it comes down to manpower yeah. and then if I'm spending all my time editing then people are like why aren't you writing stuff I'm like well I'm stuck in Premiere Pro you know trying to make this perfect cross dissolve transition
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: help me out yeah, so um, I think it's just getting the right personnel in place to ultimately allow uh, ultimately allow us to grow. And I would love to have way more of Tom and Leah and Alan and Austin and DJs somewhere running around. It'd be great to have everybody more of everybody on the channel because again, that would then that's less that I have to do, and we get different points of view uh, about this stuff, which I think ultimately makes it more relatable, which improve, improves our audience which makes it uh, a bigger deal. So I think um, that's the goal for sure. We also
1: have a lot of stuff kind of behind the scenes that you don't necessar- you're you not necessarily aware of uh, in terms of. So some of our other coaches, Tom and Joe and Hassan, they are interacting on a daily basis with all of our group programming folks. So they're dealing with them every single day. Um, and then we also have some uh, upcoming projects that we're working on uh, related to some online education stuff um, oh yeah. So I don't think I've publicly announced that, but oh yeah. There you go. There you go. It's so happening. I'm I'm currently creating two courses. We have uh, our rehab guys. Um, I've been kind of managing their content creation stuff. Um, so we have some stuff coming from our rehab guys, and so we're slowly but surely, and we have a couple of people who we are bringing on board very soon, who we will be probably announcing in the next month or two.
0: Um, so exciting stuff's happening. Yeah point is everybody needs cameras and needs to learn how to edit and then um, and I need to like clone myself yeah maybe twice yeah and uh, then I'll have time to do all this stuff yeah but it's it's, it's gonna be cool I'm really excited for stuff that's coming out and as we expand that means uh, more material more content so the question is what are additional products and services Barbell Medicine coming up with all right so let's go down the line so one we've got our the pain online education module that you Dr. Michael Ray, Dr. Derek Miles are all working on. So the idea is that people would be able to uh, purchase this bundle where they would be able to sit through lectures and have uh, um, assessments on retention um, as far as how to both assess and manage pain, injury, rehab as it pertains to strength training. Um, I think that it will be worth college credits through JMU, James Madison University. Um, And then we're working on getting uh, other CEUs and CMEs do that so that's one product we're going to do one on coaching like leah and i are helping are developing that like how to develop your own coaching practice and coaching skill set so similar online ed uh thing also myself and uh, another one of the barbell medicine uh crew vanessa she's an rd we're working on a nutrition one so online ed so that's our 3 prong approach for online education women's template is done we're just beta testing it with people so they can hopefully catch errors in the Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> the CrossFit templates coming out. Jess Griffith and I have been working. She's a CrossFit athlete. We've been working on our like kind of hybrid training template. Um, we have a vegan protein that's about to come out um, for our vegan friends. Uh, we have a supplement that's going to be called Muscle RX that's coming out. That's the uh, uh, Epicatechin. Yeah, the Epicatechin. Uh, vitamin C uh, uh, collagen protein supplement there's some data suggesting that improves tendinopathy uh, repair uh, that's been they basically did MRIs on these people with whole center uh, defect tendinopathy in their patellar tendon they took this particular supplement blend prior to uh, an eccentric based training program and they and that improved their outcomes compared to placebo so we felt the data was robust enough to do this and that reduced their pain scores so we'll get in the game what else got a book that chapters have been outlined
1: I have a few courses that I'm creating on other interesting topics and uh,
0: pediatric stuff oh nice stuff for kid, kids stuff. kids kid stuff. Kid stuff. Kid stuff yeah with Derek Miles yeah Dr. D. Miles yeah he's a pediatric guy and I'm developing an Instagram business course no I'm just kidding I'm not doing that <laughs> uh, yeah so there's a lot of cool stuff coming out it's just you know we need more people so build, build an army Hopefully within a year, this thing's worth CMEs. We have a certification course. That's a that's a certification process where you can be a barbell medicine certified coach. Um, and then we have these additional products that are available for sale. That'd be a good one. a goal. healthcare provider. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, so I think they should be separate things. Probably. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Coach type, doctor type, doctor type. <laughs> All right. So the question is. Uh, I'm about to not train for uh, 10 days or so. What should I do as to minimize my loss of gains? Yeah. Uh, I actually don't expect you to lose much, if any, as far as actual adaptations that you have gleaned from strength training. And what I mean by that is, so let's address just the strength and hypertrophy. All right, so hypertrophy, I expect that there may be some decrease in your muscle cross-sectional area that's slight, perhaps not even measurable, as long as you're not bedridden, though, I might not even be able to find any. Um, and to the effect that you do actually have any sort of atrophy, secondary to low protein intake and decreased activity, the that's going to come back within the first few days of training. So I'm not worried about that. If your strength performance goes down acutely, it's due to loss of skill. Effectively, your skill has decayed from your last training session to the time you train again. But again, I expect that to be... Uh, uh, to come back within the first week. Now, I wouldn't like peak, you know, and test your one RMs the day before you go away. I would rather have a you know the higher volume type training such that you basically just have an extended layoff, extended recovery period for that ten day period, and I wouldn't expect you to have any performance decrease at all. Does that advice change significantly if it's a month or three months instead of ten days? Yeah, it does. I mean, not, not necessarily the advice, because what are you going to do? You know, train? He's like. <laughs> uh, I do think that if the, advi- if the period of time is longer where you don't have access to barbells, I'd probably be more of a stickler for developing some sort of body weight, calisthenic circuit training you could do. I don't think that there, I have any opinion whether one is better than another, like oh if you do push-ups for your air squats you do jump squats versus push-ups i actually think that when we remember when we talked about lifting lightweights to failure how that would likely drive the hypertrophy response i think that has to be your rule of thumb that if you're going to be lifting lightweights which is your body weight that you have to do them to near failure to make them useful from that hypertrophy standpoint and you can achieve that in a couple ways one you could do multiple rounds of sub-maximal type of efforts meaning like you know, fifteen squats, fifteen push-ups, fifteen whatever else until you get to failure, or you could just do them straight through. Where you're like, I did seventy-five air squats in a row until I got to failure. You could do either. Either way it works. Um, and I don't. How think- remote are you going to be?
1: going uh, will be in Marin, so that's out
0: of the Oh, okay. you're like just with sort of San Francisco. You're an Uber. You're an Uber ride away. I just didn't. I just didn't want him to go.
1: Yeah, that's true. You're not unplugged at that point. I just didn't want him to go someplace remote and then get rabdo.
0: Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And no, not have access to no ER. he's gonna be in San Francisco, bro. <laughs> okay, so you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. So I would I mean
1: if I, I would keep the protein intake high. If you're gonna be on like zero protein diet otherwise, then I would actually expect, you know, negative nitrogen balance or something. Yeah, yeah that to yeah. cause some problems. But it's even, vegetarian. Even in a course of ten days. But if you're consuming reasonable amounts of protein, then yeah, I think you'd be
0: fine. You just take some prophylactic anabolic steroids. That's what you do. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> to be clear, don't do that, internet. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> All right, so the question is How would your approach to gaining strength change if the specific, uh, the sports uh, specific aim was like MMA or other combat sports? You want to you start? You want me to start? You can start. So, okay. I think that any sport where there is a, uh, where a high amount of training resources are placed upon practicing that sport itself, then by definition, then you have less training resources to expend on strength training, period. Right? So a football player, I may be feel comfortable with them in the gym lifting weights three times a week, but an MMA person I may only have lift twice per week because they're on the mat so often practicing their sport. Secondary second to that, their conditioning is very, very important. More important than a power lifter, you'd agree. More important than an Olympic lifter. So They're going to have to spend more time on the conditioning portion of the strength and conditioning. So, that being said, uh, I wouldn't regularly program singles because that's not specific to their sport. In fact, if they, so this, uh, and I should also say, this is for a non novice population because I don't think it matters for novice, what I'm getting at. They could literally any type of strength training is going to be fine for them. And yeah, but if non novice folks, I'd probably keep the reps six seven, eights, because absolute force production for a 1RM or a 3RM, 5RM is not useful for their sport. And the adaptations that are gleaned from generating that 1RM, 3RM, 5RM type thing may in fact be a detriment to their performance in their sport. They need to produce high amounts of force. That is true. But they need to be able to do it repeatedly over the course of a round. So doing sets of six, seven, or eight May be more useful for them. Did you change the velocity of the barbell? No, no. no I, and, and what I mean by that is, I, I, every rep that you do should be volitionally done at the fastest velocity possible. Okay, fastest velocity possible. I don't think that they need to do high velocity barbell training because it's not really a speed sport. And so, and, and that uh, and that in a way that you can practice outside of their sport. Sorry. What I'm what I'm getting at is that punching, kicking the and then the different uh, maneuvers that must be uh, that must be done within MMA or combat sports need to be practiced in th- that sport you cannot replicate them in a way in the in the gym correct correct so i don't think that doing speed deadlifts or squats or power, bench power presses snatches. power snatches really sports. does anything sports. yeah i don't think that does anything it doesn't mean that you would never try them i just think if i have limited training resources for resistance training that i would probably not do that doesn't mean that you don't find anybody who doesn't do better with, you know, some some higher speed work. I just think that I mean a sprinter. My answer would be different because I think that the the joint, the ranges of motion, the the joint angles end up being more similar in a squat and a sprint, uh, sprint stride, for instance, than in whatever maneuver you're talking about in MMA. So I might do higher velocity squats for for them, like like jump squats or. Uh, some sort of dynamic effort type thing for them but for an mma person i probably do you know sets of six and seven and i would do i would stick to the basic stuff because they're going to train twice a week and then they're going to do spend a lot more time doing conditioning that is specific towards their sport meaning that the work periods are more specific to their actual sport like how long are the rounds you're going to do that's going to be your sort of your 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 condition your your work period and you might do that same period of rest in between and then you're going to practice your sport a lot. That's what I would do. But I would so so the con, contrast that with a powerlifter who's going to see regular exposure to singles, right? Regular exposure to heavy triples and you know potentially fives and a really high emphasis on hypertrophy. Well, I don't have that emphasis for the combat sport person different sport yeah getting up your 5RM doesn't tell me anything about how what you're going to do on the mat would you peak the same uh, duration as the work no what do you mean by why are we peaking them oh yeah. oh so I see yes oh, yeah, yeah yeah alright now yes. I understand yeah <laughs> yeah so I, I it would be the last week of training yeah Yeah. Just, just to reduce the fatigue that has been generated from the strength training itself yeah yeah, I would agree with I was thinking the same, not no
1: reason to do singles. I would not bother with power movements in general versus more sport practice. And I would pay very close attention to the injury variables that I talked about this weekend, because you don't want to be the coach who injures the athlete. Right? So and you get fired. Right. So session RPE you acute and chronic workload ratios allostatic loads. So pay attention to all of that when you're programming for these people, because if you do something stupid in the gym and you know injure them in a potentially preventable way, right, and then they can't train their sport anymore, what were you there for?
0: How much whereas CBD we, oil is We good.
1: have very robust evidence. <laughs> we have very robust evidence that strength training reduces the risk of injury, right? That's assuming that it's done intelligently. Right, not three RPE ten sessions a week. You right. know, you throughout get your, your competitive sp- season, that would be idiotic.
0: You gotta get your squad up though. Right. How much uh, CBD oil do you subscribe? <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just bathe in CBD oil nightly. Yeah. I have a CBD oil cologne. It's called Dank. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Spray it on. Coming to the barbell medicine store soon. Coming to the barbell medicine <laughs> store is Dank. All right. So the question is, any recommendations on sleep literature? Uh, I don't have a go-to resource offhand. I don't. I mean, I don't have a good summary or bed analysis or even book. Well, is there an outcome that you're talking about here, like the importance of sleep for? Well, say hypothetically that I work for a company that doesn't give a shit if we get sleep, <laughs> sleep or not. Hypothetically, it sounds like residency. residency. It sounds and like medical residency. Case to get a full night's sleep. Ah. Or rather the detriment and the risks of what happened with chronic lack of sleep. Right. Yes. Well, here's the short here's here's the answer to how that goes. No one cares. <laughs> well, think about this. In residency, where we are chronically underslept, okay, overworked and underpaid, but no one cares. But every year, at <laughs> the beginning of the year, they say, hey, it's important to take time for yourself (laughs) to make sure that you get enough sleep and that you engage in meaningful personal relationships. (laughs) And and now I want you to talk to your co-resident of any problems that you may have. No one cares. All right, uh, but actually to answer your question, I don't have any go-to like meta-analysis or like uh, a book on the detriments and then solution to to that. I, I think that being said... The overwhelming evidence out there suggests that not sleeping enough, having untreated sleep apnea, having too much job-related stress makes you do worse at work, right? have worse health outcomes overall, and any smart employee would focus on the health of their – uh, uh, employees. So, any smart employer would would focus on, hey, let's make sure that you're getting enough rest. Let's make sure that you know you guys aren't suffering from any mood disorder secondary to lack of sleep. Ma- let's make sure that you're not suffering from any un- uh, unnecessary health detriment. You know, unless unless you're responsible for my Wi-Fi and you have to work all night to make sure that my Wi-Fi stays up. In which case, sorry, I need my Wi-Fi. Um, I know.
1: Yeah, there's tons of research on this stuff out there but I don't have a specific thing that I can
0: definitely point you to right off the bat and take a little searching yeah other than no one cares <laughs> I care <laughs> I like you you're great but in residency yeah. if you complain
1: well one of one of uh, one of my close friends who we went to med, we both went to med school with completed his residency he's now a sleep medicine fellow Nate. oh yeah Nate Yeah, Nate Dog. so he's now a sleep medicine fellow so uh, Not talk to him now. about potentially writing some stuff on this topic for us, and he's, he's very interested in doing that. So we might
0: uh, we might have more on that. Coming to the barbell medicine store, barbell pillows. But, <laughs> yeah. but you already know. <laughs> <hot>. <laughs> sleep at RPE eight. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you already know the too long didn't read of this is that you should sleep. You know, but maybe we'll get him to gather some of this evidence for us. So, The right.
0: yeah. so question is, uh, what is your response to? the implication that the carryover of basic barbell training, squat bench deadlift, with press to, uh, sporting movements that require a high amount of agility. That might not be that great. Yeah. My response, my response is that I would agree in many cases that the carryover is not that great because strength is specific to things we discussed, joint angle, movement, velocity, uh, contraction type, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of these different things, I view strength training with barbells as a sort of groundwork. If you are untrained and you are interested in athletic performance, then training resistance training with barbells through rather long ranges of motion that recruit large amounts of muscle mass and that are trainable and that you can uh, see progress and ultimately improve your muscle cross-sectional area and your force production, I think that's a worthy... Uh, use of your time but once you've achieved this sort of threshold of force production potential then the specific interventions needed to improve sporting performance are going to vary from sport to sport so if you're talking about change of direction that's an eccentric contraction it's at certain joint angles, certain uh, uh, muscle stretch levels. and so you can replicate those through various types of exercises that may not involve a barbell at all, or may not involve a full depth squat, for instance. Uh, when I remember when we were still affiliated with that who would, will not be named, that we were or I was charged with discussing this paper that suggested that half squats improved vertical jump performance greater than full depth squats. Like, well, what do we say to this? Well, now I would say, well, duh, the half squat's more specific to the vertical jump, (laughs) right? Because the counter movement is a half squat. And so the joint angle is more specific. And so if you train that, you get stronger in that particular range of motion and you can jump higher. I'm not saying that you should do half squats if you want to get a higher vertical jump, but the fact that that transfers over a little bit better than a full depth squat is not necessarily surprising to me. What's more surprising is the resistance to the belief that strength is specific to how you train. Meaning that if you only train certain ranges of motion, certain movements, et cetera, it may not transfer over to another thing as well as doing that certain thing or a movement that more closely mimics that certain thing.
1: We actually brought up an example of this for him last week when I texted you. Which one? I was like, you ever heard what do, you, what, do you, what do you hear people say oh yeah about the... you ask when you ask them what do you think about doing a 4 inch deficit deadlift 5 inch deficit deadlift what do they say They say oh it's probably not the best use of your time I don't think it really carries over to the regular deadlift from the floor that well because it changes the mechanics too much it's too different it's too different what is that saying saying the strength developed from that task is specific to the joint angles and the positions that you adopt in that position. Not that strength is completely general because if it wasn't, you could use whatever deficit and it would carry over. So the fact that you realize that, hey, doing this big of a deficit changes things too much and I don't get that great of a transference shows that strength is specific to the joint angles, the contraction mode, the muscle length, all that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? So I would agree, I mean, I was thinking I think probably verbatim, the same thing's in my head. It's like, well, for the very untrained person, increasing force production ability will improve sports performance. The other thing is we have very large, robust data sets showing that strength training reduces injury risk in sports. Besides load management being number one, the things I talked about this weekend, load management, strength training are the two best things we have to reduce injury risk in general, not functional movement screens. Right? But strength training and load management, those are the keys. So that's why athletes should do these things, not because we are claiming that doing these things and getting their low bar squat up to 650 is going to make them perform better. And I don't really think most people are claiming that, right? I think any intelligent person will recognize there's a threshold of diminishing returns with this stuff, right?
0: So I think that's our argument. Yep. The book to read is called Strength is Specific. It's by Chris Beardsley, it's $2.99. I don't know why he priced it at that. I guess he's trying to not make money. Yeah, he's yeah, he's actively <laughs> trying to not make money. I think, but it's a really great read, and I think when he talk, he actually discusses the agility, that particular topic, uh, pretty in depth, and talks about the Nordic hamstring curl and glute ham raise and eccentric weight releasers and yeah, the dreaded leg extension. All right. Anyway. All right. So, so the question the question is: uh, Are are there any good predictors of the amount of lean body mass that you may carry based on anthropometric data? And second, second to that, uh, does that accurately, with any certain certainty, correlate with strength? Correlate with absolute performance on in uh, certain strength tasks. So, to answer your first question, kind of. um, So, I believe Dr. Butts. came up with a formula that uses your wrist circumference and I think your, maybe your elbow girth or something else and a few other different measurements that ultimately decides if you're a small, medium, or large skeleton human and then based on your existing body type predicts your amount of lead body mass that you could reasonably hope to carry. And I don't know how well that's been validated over like, you know, large population like sample sizes, but The data I've seen on it is fairly convincing. I think Greg Knuckles has that on his site just to predict your actual lean body mass carrying capacity. I think it's reasonable, you know, to within a standard deviation. I mean, at least. Yeah, I think the the, the piece
1: that makes me uncomfortable to say like, yeah, go wild with this prediction is just I don't know how you're going to respond to training. So yeah. having seen the data on how broad the variation in response is, sure. I'm like, I don't want to tell you, yeah, you could ex- totally expect this much, and then you end up being the guy on the other end, or vice versa. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, you know, this is one of those things where the best thing to do is to make your observations retrospectively based on how you respond to training, rather than try to make some sort of pr- pr- predictions, because training never goes perfectly, ever.
0: Yeah. Speak for yourself, man. I'm perfect. <laughs> for 1985. Right,
1: yeah. Training never goes perfectly. And so you know, you end up predicting that you're going to carry this much lean body mass, and then for whatever reason, training doesn't go right, and you don't meet whatever goal by whatever arbitrary time point that you want, and then you get all down on yourself about it. And it's like none of this matters because what are you going to do? Not train. You're going to keep training. Mm-hmm. You're going to keep doing what you want to do. You know, yeah, that's you're going right. to keep trying to get bigger, keep trying to get stronger. It's just what we do around here, I guess. Except for we don't always want to get bigger. I guess we just try to be. Oh. Yeah, that's a, that's a 185
0: good. pounds with abs. <laughs> so, um, you know what I mean? I haven't seen anything that... There was a. There was one study, and I sent it to you, that was based on the amount of lean body mass someone carried and then predi- tried to predict their squat. And, it, and again, that was the first paper of any type that I've seen, and it's not been well validated. So I don't think that I can confidently say that there's a prediction based on a certain amount of lean body mass and how much you're going to be able to lift. That being said, if I had to pick one variable that would predict how much weight you're gonna lift, it would be your lean body mass level, okay? Uh, I just don't- It's safer to say that if you have a ton versus a little, you're gonna squat
1: more than less. Yes. But the amount that you squat is very difficult to predict because lean body mass is one of numerous factors involved in strength performance, including things like central activation or central nervous system stuff, peripheral nervous system stuff, rate coding, muscle twitch rate, Force transfer, like all these sure, that motivation. motivations. Yeah, A handful, yeah, handful
0: of so. things. So, so I think where this ends up leaving us, at, with the answer to this question is, I think you can predict within one standard deviation how much muscle mass you can carry. How does that affect your management? And I don't think that it does necessarily, because I think that there are more immediate concerns that need to be taken care of. You say, well, all right, what's my waist? What's my body fat? What's my, you know. Uh, what are my health conditions that I'm dealing with? How do I best manage these right now? Yeah. And then I think I don't think that necessarily changes based on how much lean body mass you could carry. I'm thinking back to when I started training. And if I had done
1: these calculations and predicted how much lean body mass or how much I could squat, what I would have done differently based on that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I would have just continued training my ass off for the past decade, just kept on regardless of what your life. that thing told me. Yeah. Unless I had decided to listen to the calculator and say, Oh well, you can only expect to squat three fifty and then I
0: get three fifty I'm like, Well, guess I'm maxed out. Yeah. You know? I know the most accurate most accurate thing is the retrospective analysis, right? But that being said, you just started. I'm pumped for you. Like you when we squatted come back?
1: and pressed and deadlifted and benched for the first time ever this weekend.
0: Which is cool. So you yeah, can come to a barbell awesome. medicine seminar and look for the first time. Uh, and I think, I mean, that's really cool. So I'm excited when we come back in a year to see you again and you going to be a different human. So that's really cool. The question is, as an advanced athlete, do I need to feel more fatigued, feel bad more often, <laughs> in order to progress? All right, so first thing is, I don't think recovery and performance are necessarily tied together. Meaning that you can have an improved performance with less recovery than you otherwise Than you would expect, Uh, you might not feel great, for instance. So your subjective perception of your recovery may not be reliable enough to predict your performance. So I don't know if you need to feel poorly more often in order to perform better. I and further, I don't know if it matters if you feel poorly more often. I don't know if I care that you feel more poorly more often. I think the most important thing is, as an advanced lifter, is you. if you don't have a coach and you're doing this thing on your own, that you need to have regular intervals of assessment. That's the most important thing that I can tell you from being here long enough. Like, So Mike Toucher has been coaching me for – it's been a while, uh, five years almost now, right? And he'll – if you interviewed him and you said, well, what do you think about Feigenbaum – First, he would pay me so many compliments. <laughs> and then he would say he never fills out his training log, which is true because I hate his training log and I like my own and I just do my own. And so then he'll have to like track me down. He'll like message me on Instagram and I'll decline it. All right. <laughs> and then he'll mess it. He'll send me an email and I d- delete it so I don't see it and feel bad. And then he'll Facebook message me and it's just, I'm like, oh, dang it. And so then I'll have to give him some feedback, right? And he would, he'd be the first one to say, he's like, look, the more... F- point you know pointed feedback that you give me the better that i can help guide you you know because my subjective assessment of my progress is helpful in telling him what is my psychological what are my psychological attitudes towards my training how do i see this going you know and what do i want to do next that's help it's helpful so the regular assessment tends to be the most important thing i don't necessarily care how you feel all right um, anecdotally the worse. That Austin feels, it seems like, the better he performs. And I I do think that because you need more stress overall, as a more advanced lifter who is by definition more training resistant, you will have to generate and therefore carry more fatigue longer, that you may feel suboptimal more often for while you're developing while you're generating that fatigue, generating that stress. But when it's peak, when it's peak season. When you go through those few weeks where every week is a PR and you're just, you feel like a novice all over again, there's nothing sweet.
1: Because so many people fail to recognize all the uh, inputs and outputs of oh, the equation yeah. and realize how much your perception of fatigue can be modulated, i.e. changed by things like your own beliefs about training fatigue and expectations about training fatigue and stuff like that, you know what I mean? So here's the example, I mean, I wrote uh, an article on our site about fatigue uh, before, and I don't feel particularly bad in training the overwhelming majority of the time. Same. So for the past several months, uh, I think I can count one session where I felt very poorly, and it was this past Thursday. And Still I felt fast. fast. And then the next day, I spend 12 hours traveling here, and I show up, and I PR my pause deadlift on that platform the next day, right? And the most of the time, I feel fine in training. Like, if I'm a little tired, that's whatever, you know? And if I feel great, that's cool. Uh, but I don't feel bad the overwhelming majority of the time, and I think that is just due to management of training load, Right. The time when I felt really bad in training that I talked about earlier today when I wanted to quit training, that's when training load was being egregiously mismanaged, right, when I was training on that program at the time. And I felt horrible. I wanted to, you know, and so I think it's primarily a training load management thing, but if training load management is in place and the dose of training is appropriate for you at that time... I think that carrying a little bit of fatigue is no big deal and I think that you see a lot of people on Instagram, for example, talking about how they feel wrecked and destroyed and they feel like their training is in the dumpster fire and all this catastrophic language about how they're feeling, right? And that's reflecting their own attitudes and perceptions and ideas and understanding of training and training fatigue and stuff like that. It's particularly prevalent right now as we approach Raw Nationals, right? (laughs) You see somebody pull a deadlift that looks perfectly fine. And they're like, I feel like total dog shit today. Like I got hit by three trucks and run over by a tractor. Why are you talking like that?
0: Run over yeah. by a tractor? <laughs> Must be Midwestern folk. <laughs> right? <laughs> if right? yeah. I felt
1: better, I felt worse. I'm just kind of chugging along and we'll see what happens. And it's fine if you have a better attitude about it, you know? Yeah. So you're going to be tired some of the time if you train hard enough. But feeling terrible all the time is either a reflection of a poor psychological approach to this stuff or mismanagement of training load, in my opinion. Yeah, or caring too much about how you feel.
0: Which is a reflection of attitudes. Yeah, just don't don't matter. (laughs) All right, so the question question is, what are my top three least favorite Instagram Live questions? Uh, My number one least favorite one is, uh, what are you eating right now? Because it's annoying. Because it's the same thing every time. It's eggs and oatmeal. You're welcome. Second least favorite one is: uh, Should I do Texas method or five three one? And the answer, the answer is no.
1: The,
0: the third question is anything to do with linear progression. Literally anything. Because the answer is just stop doing linear progression. Do something else. Because it doesn't matter. And I know when people say, oh, you're just pissed because you're no longer affiliated with that company that shouldn't be named. No, I just don't care. Look, and because it doesn't matter what you squat at three months or six months or even 12 months, it matters what you squat at six years, 12 years, 20 years. And I have no indication that how you do in that first three to six months has any bearing on how you do later on, either with compliance or ultimate performance. Austin, this my man right here, this guy right here, had the most average of results when it came to his linear progression. Okay? 285, I believe, for his last successful squat session, right? And people are like, that's very pedestrian. That's true. But he's out-squatted every person affiliated with that organization, <laughs> which suggests that the predictive power of your performance at the end of LP is meaningless which makes sense I don't care what you squat at three months because it doesn't matter so when somebody says look I'm on my third run through LP I go just fucking stop just stop doing it it doesn't matter not because I don't care about your training because I do I'm intimately involved I want to know let me help but the point is just move on it does doing another program is going to be fine so that's my that might be my first like the least favorite, because I have so many feels. I can tell, but 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 I actually care more about that question. Like I have more emotion. The first one's just more annoying. It's like, what are you eating? Why do you care? Yeah. What are you eating, bro? <laughs> more importantly, what's your girl eating, and why? You know, <laughs> she's about to have some eggs and oatmeal. If you keep this up, <laughs> all right,
1: your turn. Beat that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, usually when those get asked to me, I'm like, I don't feel like talking about it. <laughs> right. So you just skip them. You're like, ask Jordan. <laughs> right. And they all end up on my Instagram. Uh, I'm going to just basically name one, and it's any variety of, this hurts, what do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. You know yeah, I'm I don't like, know you. My brack hurts when I do this. My elbow hurts when I do this. And I'm like, I have woefully inadequate information to provide a an idea of what you should be doing. I can't see you lifting, I don't know about your training. So those pain and injury type questions, as much as I really want to help, as you hopefully can tell by the way I talk about this stuff, uh, it's just not enough information. Uh, so a half of a sentence uh, in an Instagram Live is no way to guide somebody's rehab.
0: My hip hurts sometimes when I squat. What should I do? Yeah, I, can, I don't know. Keep squatting, probably. <laughs> the odds are it'll go away, unless it's like this huge invasive cancer, in which case, like you know, I like, got bigger problems. Yeah. So, in which case, keep squatting.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, decrease your mortality. Yeah, right. that's all. That's the biggest one.